What do you do when you're hit and run over by some sin in your life? And it happens not just once or twice, but over and over again. What are you feeling? What are you thinking? How do you think God responds to our struggle with sin, our continual struggle with sin? Maybe you haven't really thought about it all that much. But if you're like me, you have thought about it, you've pondered it, you've questioned it, you've worried about it. Because the truth of the matter is, we all wrestle with sin. None of us are perfect. And the scriptures tell us that God has pretty high standards for uh, his children. So where does that place us? What do we do? How do we deal with it? What, what is the, uh, what's the way that we might respond to it? It's not just a theoretical question, it's a real question. It's, a, in a sense, a life and death question. And when we read the scriptures, we find that God is concerned about it. And it's what I think has something to do with this passage that we have read here in First Peter. When I read the scriptures, I'm asking myself questions like, why did the author write this, these particular words to this particular group of people? Now, we know all the scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit, and we can say, well, it's because the Holy Spirit prompted the person to write it. But I, my question is, why did the Holy Spirit prompt this person to write these particular words to this particular group of people at this particular time and in this particular way? I mean, if you think of all the things that God could say to human beings, it's really a pretty small, small book. So why this? And when I read this first letter of Peter, I, I get a sense that this, the church, and he says in the first couple of verses of the letter, they are, he's writing the church that's scattered around. And more than likely they're scattered because they're being persecuted. And he says in verse 6 that they're going through trials. They're going through some difficult trials. And I suspect he's writing to people who are being persecuted, who are struggling. And they're probably thinking, God, what are you doing to us? And there's a sense of discouragement. And some of them may feel so discouraged and so weighed down that they're saying, I'm not doing this anymore. Why should I mess with this? What's the point? Besides that, I keep falling into the same struggles all the time. And maybe that's why God is letting this happen to us. And Peter's response to the church, to the, the people he writes to, is not to chastise them. It's to encourage them. And he says to them, I've got a good word for you. Praise be to the, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has raised his son from the dead. And that's the point. Everything Peter writes here, every positive thing Peter says here, is about the fact that Christ has risen from the dead. He keeps coming back to that. The 20th century Scottish preacher James Stewart said that the resurrection is at the center of every Christian sermon that's ever been preached. It's at the center of, of every doctrine that Christians have ever believed. It's at the heart of everything that has ever been written and has, it was ever written in the New Testament. Whether you're talking about the Gospels, the book of Acts, the letters, the Revelation. 
what is behind it and under it, what motivates it, is the resurrection of Christ. Everything. And Peter says, that is, that, that's everything I'm writing to you and the, and the whole rest of this letter is founded on, based on, the resurrection of Christ. As Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, it's futile. It's about Christ being raised. And he says, because Christ is raised, you have new birth, you have a living hope. And we think about hope, we tend to think about sort of the, uh, ooh, I hope this happens. Cross our fingers, we, you know, we, we wish. If you watched the Kentucky Derby yesterday, I suspect there were a whole lot of people who were hoping that their horse won. But that's not what Peter's talking about. The kind of hope he's talking about is confidence. He said, our confidence is in Christ. Because Christ is risen from the dead, he's conquered every foe, every enemy, everything that comes against him and us. He has done it all, and we have confidence that he is victorious. And the net result of that is that he says in verses 4 and 5, we have an inheritance that cannot spoil, fade, or perish. He uses words that are sort of the negative of it in order to help us understand the positive of it. And we understand things in our, in our world that spoil, fade, and perish. Something that's supposed to be in the refrigerator, you take some, take some yogurt out of the refrigerator and leave it on your counter for a couple of weeks. Or some uh, milk and see what happens to it. Some of you are cleaning out your dorm rooms and you may find some things that you've... <laughs> That's what that smell was. We know all about things that spoil. We know about things that perish. How quickly things can go up in flames. Our most precious possessions. We know about things that fade. You know, we do digital photographs now, but the old photographs began to fade after a while. And our memories begin to fade after a while. We know all about things that spoil and perish and fade. And Peter says, the inheritance that God has promised to you through the risen Christ will not do any of that. It is certain. It is sure. You can count on it. Period. And I think that for people who have grown up in the Wesleyan tradition... People who've grown up in a, in a, the, as followers of John Wesley, I think this is a word we need to hear once again. We need to be reminded that our inheritance is sure. Because sometimes, in an attempt to make sure people don't think, misunderstand our theology, we give off a, a vibe that our inheritance is insecure. I have to tell you, I, I was raised in that sort of environment. Always worried about doing something wrong. And, and if you did something wrong, that was it. You were done. You better hope Jesus didn't come back when that took place. You know, I mean, and, and the guilt, the anxiety, the fear about, you know, lying to my parents or mistreating my, my, my sisters. And I hope they felt the same kind of guilt about mistreating me. <laughs> And then I had to feel guilty about that, you know, right? And, and 
Just all the thoughts that go through our minds and all of that. You live in constant fear that, oh man, this is, this is more than God can handle. And especially when the sin is something we continually wrestle with and fight with. My dad, who grew up in an even stricter environment, talks about how you know, he lived with this constant fear. And, and that's not of God. That's not God's plan for us. He does not want us to live in, with a sense of fear and insecurity and anxiety about our eternal inheritance. He wants to live with certainty. He wants us to know that. And it seems to me that we're, we're selling God short. I mean, think about your close relationships, parent, child, s- sibling, your closest friends. Spouse, how quickly are we ready to forgive them? Because we all hurt each other. In fact, we are hurt most by the people who are closest to us. And so we are continually hurting each other. If we really love people, we're ready to forgive them. And often, we will forgive them even if they don't give us the contrition that we would like for them to give us. We still forgive. And if we do that, how much more God? In the passage from the Psalms we read this morning, what does it say about God? He is patient and slow to anger and compassionate and loves to forgive. And how often do we hear those words repeated again and again and again through the Scriptures? And the Scriptures tell us all the good that we can imagine in our hearts toward other people, God is infinitely more. God is infinitely more patient, infinitely more reasonable, infinitely more forgiving, infinitely more compassionate, infinitely more loving. And yet we've created this image of God where he, you know, he's waiting around and just can't wait for us to do something wrong so he can pounce on us and write us out of the will. And it's creating an atmosphere in our hearts of insecurity. I don't think that's God's plan for us. The resurrected Christ has done more than that, than for us to live in insecurity and fear. But, Peter also says, talks about the end of our faith. And the perseverance of our faith. And he says in verse 7 that these trials have come so that your faith may be proved genuine. And in verse 9, he says, you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And as I read this, what I hear Peter saying is, God's, our inheritance in, in God's power is secure, but you have a role to play in it as well. We have a role of, of, of preserving our faith, of making sure that we are, we are continually committed to Christ. That our desire is Christ, our yearning is Christ, our our passion is Christ. You think about the word passion, and you you think of earnestness and sincerity and seriousness. When you think about passion, you think of something that just absorbs all of your being. When I was a child, baseball was my passion. I woke up at the first thing in the morning, let's get a game together. And... All day we played baseball. I mean, I was, uh, there were other kids who didn't have the same passion. And, and I would 
I would get on them because I wanted to keep playing. And they're like, I'm tired. No, we can play more. You know, we make up our own games. So you, if we only had five or six people, we played till you couldn't see the ball anymore. The only reason we stopped playing was to eat. And that was only because our mothers were dragging us home. I go to bed, I dream about baseball. Everything about my life was related to baseball. It was my passion. And Peter says, as followers of Jesus, he's our passion. We wake up in the morning and think about Jesus. We go to bed at night, we think about Jesus. Everything that happens during the day is about Jesus. Our relationships are about Jesus in the center of those. It's our passion. Our faith. And we're called to live in this passion for Christ. In this desire to want Christ more than we want anything else. To engage ourselves with the one who died for our sins, as we sang a few moments ago, and who raised us to new life. And to live with that kind of passion is our calling. And there is a connection between the certainty of our assurance, of our inheritance, and our passion for Christ. Now, as you listen to that, you might be thinking, talk about two opposite things. And if you've been around the church for a while, you know this is one of those theological hot-button issues. And I am convinced that the answer is not either or. It's not somewhere in the middle. It's both and. Because they're both true. They're both biblical. We have an assurance in Christ. We have a responsibility about our passion for Christ. And we live to hold those two truths in tension in order to be true children of God. After the service, someone was, first service, someone was talking to me a little bit about this, and they were, they were talking. They, well, something they said triggered a thought in my mind. If you're a, if you're a college basketball fan, you know that one of the one of the things that they're dealing with is a as a rule that, for lack of a better term, they're called one and done. The NBA, the National Basketball Association, the professionals, they won't let someone come right out of high school into the professional ranks. They have to wait a year, and so a lot of these. Better players are going to college for one year. They have no intention of staying longer. They play one year and then they jump to the professional leagues. And they call that one and done. And and as we were talking, it struck me that that's one of the things that we wrestle with here. See, our, our natural tendency is to go to one extreme or the other. Partly because we're more concerned about protecting our our theological position than we are with really trying to live for Christ. And so we get wrapped up in our theology, and, and if we're not careful, it can take us to extremes. And we have one and done on both ends. On the one hand, you have people who will talk about uh, one and done in the sense of, I prayed for, to receive Christ, and now I'm done. I'm in. doesn't matter what I do from this point. And on the other extreme, you have people who are one and done and say, if I commit one sin, I'm done. Christ gives up on me. I've got to start this thing all over again. And they're both wrong. They're both unbiblical. Because the truth of the matter is, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, it's not about a, a, a one-time, momentary, I'm in and that's it. He, how many times does Jesus talk about, if you're going to be his disciple, you follow him. Take up your cross and follow him. Surrender your life to him. Give all that you are to him. It is a journey. 
in which we engage ourselves and desire passionately for Christ. And on the other side of it, we are not perfect. We, are all, we all struggle. And God is bigger. And God is always ready and willing to forgive us than we even are to forgive ourselves. And even if we, and even in our tradition, if you believe you could be a believer and at some point turn away from God, it is a long, long process of doing that. And God never gives up on us. Paul writes, I will never, I will never leave you nor forsake you, God says. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. As the poet says, the hound of heaven pursues us to the end of our days. It is so much bigger than our theological positions. And if we are willing to be content with the extremes, what ends up happening is, is our focus is on us instead of on Christ. Our focus is on a theological perspective instead of on Christ. And the sad thing is we don't know what we're missing because it's in Christ that we find the joy that Peter writes about in this passage. Over and over and over again, Peter writes three or four times, he talks about rejoicing, he talks about joy. And that comes from being connected to Christ and knowing that our eternal inheritance is secure because of Christ. And that we have this passionate desire for Christ. And when you put those together and we live in this tension that sometimes is difficult for us, that's where we find the joy. Because our focus is Christ. Dallas Willard used to say, he tell people that there is no being in the universe that's more interested in joy and more joyful than God is. He said, so is Christ. You look at, look at all the people flocking to Jesus, especially the children who flock to Jesus. Children are smart. They don't flock to people who are mean and nasty and don't want them. They flock to people who are open-armed. Joyful, loving. God's design for us is joy. But joy doesn't come in one extreme or the other. It comes in the tension of both truths and the focus on Christ. You know, as you wrestle with trying to think through this, and I don't know what you're, where you come at from your, your position, but I read something years ago that helped me. It helped me to see with a little more clarity. And I, and I don't remember where I read it or who said it, but it stuck with me. It, it's an image, a metaphor that I think is profound. It's odd, but it's profound. And the person said, so let's pretend that, that the Christian life is like riding in a pickup truck. And Jesus is driving the pickup truck. I'll let you put that into your theological ideas however you want. <laughs> Jesus is driving the pickup truck and all who are believers are riding in the back of the pickup truck. And some people think the tailgate is down and it's not that hard to fall out. And other people think the tailgate is up and it's virtually impossible to fall out. But the point is not how close to the tailgate can we be and still stay in the truck. The point is how close to the cab where Jesus is 
can we live? Because that's where we have life and joy. This is our passion, to be as close to Jesus as possible. And when our passion is to be close to Jesus, the rest of it takes care of itself. It's in being close to Jesus. It's in that passion. It's in the celebrating our inheritance that we find genuine, true joy. This week I read about years ago when translators were working with the uh, language of the Alaskan people. There were, as is always the case, there were words that, that weren't, they didn't have in English. And uh, there were words in English that they didn't have in their language. And you know if you've done anything with languages, you know that there are always gaps. That's one of the beauty of, beauties of language. But one of the words that they did not, that they couldn't find in their language, they, they didn't have was the word Joy. And they they thought and thought and they searched and searched trying to figure out how they would translate the scriptures when the word joy was needed. And and all of a sudden, they they began to think, well, what are joyous moments? They they remembered how many times they had seen the most, what they would consider the most joyous moment of the day for every, seemed like every family. It was when the sled dogs came in for all the writing and work they'd done all day and they came home for supper. And as the sled dogs came in, to the house, in by the house, all the children would run outside of the house because they loved the dogs. And the dogs loved them. And they would hug each other and jump all over each other. And, and they would play together. And it was the moment children were giggling. And it was the moment that just, it was one of those moments of joy. And so when they translated the scriptures, they had that picture in mind. And when what they translated was retranslated back to English, there was a passage that said, when the disciples saw Jesus, they wagged their tails. (laughs) I think God wants a whole bunch of people who are so enamored with him, so passionate about him, who have felt so secure about their eternal inheritance that we wag our tails. And we live in the joy that is ours in Christ, who is dead and is raised to life. Father, we pray that you will give us that joy Help us to have a passion for you. Fill us with a confidence in your promises. And make us people who exude the joy of your spirit in the risen Christ. We ask this through Jesus. Amen.